Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Ruby wants more than I can give her, but that's how children are. They expect you to fix all things, figure out all things, and love them always. Sometimes you can't do any of that. Sometimes you barely love yourself or not at all. Sometimes you barely drag yourself out of bed and function in a world that is nary a clue, nor care that you've abandoned the dreams you had for yourself. Instead, you raised a child who loves you but resents you because of the mistakes you made. I'm stitched together by the lies I tell myself and the lies people want to believe about me. This is G.P. Gottlieb, and today I'm talking to Catherine Adele West, author of Saving Ruby King, a beautifully written debut novel about friendship, love, spirituality, intergenerational trauma, racial injustice, and loss. Set in Chicago's gritty far south side, West's characters each get a voice, including that of the Calvary Hope Church, around which much of the action takes place. Ruby King knows that her father is abusive, and so does everyone else in the community, but nobody seems able to do anything about it. Then her mother is murdered. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Galia. I really appreciate it. So how'd you come to write Saving Ruby King? Well, Saving Ruby King was, uh, well, it started off uh, as a short story, and it was just going to kind of be a way uh, for me to understand the relationship that I had with my dad. Um, It's loving, but it's kind of complicated, and how the church played a role in it. And I was talking to a friend at a wedding and uh, she said, you know what, that would be a great book. And I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, look, I can write a book. I got two degrees in journalism. How hard can it be? <laughs> Turns out it's like so freaking hard to write a book. Duh. But, <laughs> but I pushed through. It took me um, a few years. But um, a short story morphed into, you know, a literary fiction book with a little bit of mystery, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, culture and, and just like a, a book about, you know, kind of my great love for Chicago um, and its people. I'm so happy that I was able to kind of persevere and, and write this book. So well received. I'm just completely founded. I am so happy, too, because I loved it. And we share our love of Chicago. Specifically, you talk about Bronzeville, about which you write quote, that it's a whole black world within a city, a world with only our people who barely, who arrived barely a century ago in innumerable droves during the Great Migration, living in cramped tenements with tenuous hope of more freedom than what was doled out down south. So my question is, do you feel like this is a distinctly Chicago story? I feel like it's a distinctly human story. It just takes place in the wonderful, magnificent city of Chicago. Um, my love for Chicago definitely shines through in the book, but um, Saving Ruby King is a book 
So every universal exchange, you know, love, forgiveness, family, spirit. So um, I just felt that that was a way for me to let people know where I come from. But at the same time, you know, just in and of themselves are universal. Um, but, you know, I definitely show love to uh, the city where I was born and raised. Mm-hmm. Calvary Baptist Church has a voice in your story. It watches events unfold, notices the color of paint chosen. What binds everyone to Calgary Baptist, Calvary Baptist Church? Actually, it's uh, called Calvary Hope Christian. Um, Christian. Yeah. So the, the thing is, when it comes to a lot of African-American churches, we have really, I feel we have dramatic things. Um, but the one thing that binds church or binds all of these is the church. It's the community of the church and people that they know for Layla, like since she was born for Jackson, since he was born to Lebanon, it's, it's how I grew up. So a lot of the, um, from my church, I've known essentially all my life. And I mean, even if you up and you go away or they grow up and they move away, like these are people still going to like invite to your wedding. These people work up to like your funeral. Like it's just, the, the church, the black church in particular, is just a way that we or African Americans come together and act. And I wanted to definitely show that Calvary uh, Hope Church. I honestly think that it comes um, the aspect of religion in the book. I think that when some people see church or Calvary Hope Church or, you know, kind of the mentions of God, they kind of think like, oh, this about like converting and it's just like no no this is about a place not necessarily um about um converting anybody it's not that it's about how the church has a com- not necessarily the spiritual that god may play in somebody's life so-, so catherine you write that black people always seem to go by nicknames what's your nickname do you have one uh, actually, I have many. Um, it really depends on who you ask. Uh, normally, it's just Kathy, C-A-T-H-Y, super simple. Uh, that's essentially how I'm known, um, what I have friends call me. But uh, the other nicknames, you are never going to know. <laughs> those, are, those are personal and those are familial. And if anybody else called me by that name, they might get a stern talking to by me. Um, (laughs) But normally just my nickname is is, uh, Kathy or Kat. Never Kate. I am not a Kate. Don't ever, ever call me Kate. I will not answer you. That's just not not what you do. And that's not who I am. But but Kathy, Kathy is just like the general nickname um, that I go by. So you write a lot. Among the many subjects in this book, you write a lot about friendships. What do you see as the difference in friendships among women contrasted to friendships between men in your book as in life? Well, actually, believe it or not, the majority of my friends are men. Um, So uh, if you ever look at the acknowledgments of my book, like I literally have a paragraph where I just thank all of my closest friends who happen to be guys. When it comes to relationships 
or friendships with men, I always feel like there is an emotional connection, but it's something you really, really got to delve deep into. Most of the time, it's jokes, it's ribbing, it's fun, it's like punches in the arms, like there is not a lot of, you know, I love you and you're like a brother to me. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. When it comes to female relationships, this is what I kind of had to learn because I didn't have a lot of close female relationships literally until like a few years ago. Um, when it comes to female relationships, they can be a lot more emotionally, we're a lot more deep. And when it comes to female friendships and black female friendships in particular, we are ride or die for our own. Like if you killed somebody, but you needed an alibi and we're friends, it's like, oh, well, I'm all night. Like, I don't, I don't know what you say she did, sir, but I, she was with me, you know? So when it comes to kind of female relationships, I kind of feel like we wear um, our, our hearts on our sleeves a lot more. It's more emotional to me. There's just like this really, really deep, intense emotional connection to your female friends. And then when it comes to male friends, there's that bond and that, there's that loyalty but like the outward expressions of, um, you know, adoration and love, not so much, but that's honestly to be expected. Yeah, that really comes through in the relationship of Ruby and in the relationship between Ruby and Layla. So Ruby recalls that Layla was always the smart one and she herself was the pretty one. And she felt like in addition to external prejudice that, uh, as a black woman, she was also a victim of internal prejudice. In the novel, you mention the burden of black women. Can you expound on that? Well, yeah, when I talk about the burden of black women, it seems, and not it seems, this is just what it is. When it comes to the burden of black women, we are marginalized. We are unprotected. We have to work 20 times as hard to get a quarter of what it is that we should do. Um, I kind of feel as if being a black woman has made me stronger than I ever could have realized. It's it's one of those things where I have such a deep pride about who I am and where I came from. And unfortunately, that's not really celebrated to me um, in the media and literature, or rather not celebrated enough to me. Media and literature, um, just in general, you know, um, black women, we can be maligned, ostracized, gaslighted, um, and, and just, you know, their attempts to bring us to, to such a, a, a base or, or low level, but yet and still we rise above that every time and do so with such, you know, grace and perseverance um, and power that it can literally scare other people. And then that's where you get that whole, you know, that, that um, unjustified, angry black woman characterization and, and our passion is always mistaken for anger when it's not that, but once again, it's just like a way to kind of align and ostracize and marginalize black women when we are to be commended and celebrated for all of the contributions that we make, not just in literature um, and art and entertainment and science, and politics, I mean, just all across the board and not just in the United States, all over the world. And I just feel that 
when it comes to black women, that's not something that's done. And it's something that, you know, that needs to be rectified. And that's that, that burden that, uh, that we, that we carry. Well said. What interested you about Ruby's relationship with her father? Well, I wanted to kind of explore um, black father-daughter relationships. Um, one that was kind of somewhat healthy being Layla and Jackson's relationship, um, but it still had its challenges. And one that was just totally um, toxic and unhealthy. I think for me, the most interesting thing um, exploring uh, the relationships were just one between Lebanon and me. I think we're just the the intersection of generational trauma and the secrets that cause generational trauma and how that really affected Lebanon and how he dealt with in terms of love or lack thereof. He was never really able to express it. As a matter of fact, Lebanon comes across as, as a very angry person, but there are reasons, reasons for why he's so angry and why he parts that anger on others physically or verbally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting to explore Ruby and, and her reactions to that um, because I just felt that there needed to be a realistic, uh, you know, somewhat realistic betrayal of what happens when that uh, that chain of intergenerational trauma um, is not broken and when it's left to up to the present generation to try and figure a way out of a very deep, dark phase of like psychological um, and, and heartbreaking secrets that haven't even been like, say, revealed to Lebanon. Like he doesn't know all the reasons why he is, is then. Um, and therefore Ruth doesn't know why her life is way that it is in a lot of respect. So it was just really interesting to um, explore that and explore that relationship. Um, and I just I had a really fun time doing it. Mm. Layla wants to save Ruby. Is Ruby at all concerned about saving Layla? Um, well, that's a very good question. I think that with Ruby, I think Ruby feels like Layla can... Um, pretty much take care of herself. That Layla has things together way more than she does. So Ruby loves Layla, and Ruby is there for Layla. Should anything, you know, occur, like if Layla broke a leg or broke an arm or something, you know, Ruby would be there, right? But Ruby just thinks, on the whole, I believe that Layla has everything together. Um, so I don't think that Ruby looks at Layla in terms of her. Uh, of, of Layla needing to be saved. And truth be told, Ruby resents kind of um, feeling like Layla always save her or somebody always save her when Ruby is trying to perhaps find a way to, to save herself in some respect or turn her situation around. Mm-hmm. What keeps Layla's father going? Well, I think what keeps Jackson going is a combination of love and fear, just this deep, terrifying fear of if somebody really knew who he was, if they really found out the type of person he was or or anything that he felt that he did, um, that he would just be lost, right? So I kind of feel that 
it's this kind of fear of who he was, but this love of his family and the desire to be the man that he's always wanted to be, but always feels like, you know, he's fallen short of becoming. So it's like a lot, uh, it, it's, it's kind of alchemic mix of, you know, love and fear and hope, desperation. Mm-hmm. So these are all interconnected people. Um, now, going back to Ruby's father, Lebanon, he's visiting his dying mother in the hospital. And he says, quote, we got to fight for everything we want, sometimes kill for it, everything. A nice suit, a friend, a good job after a five-year bid for manslaughter. He was in prison for a few years. So the question is, does his difficult upbringing justify his attitude and behavior? Well, I mean, it's kind of one of those things that like what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? So sometimes if you feel like you've got the short end of the stick, you feel justified in how you might react or or lash out to certain things. I think part of it is because you have no other way to cope because you weren't taught how to cope um, with, you know, anger or with sadness or with fear. And I think another part of it is you maybe want somebody to still stick with you and still save you. I think that's part of the reason Lebanon still stayed with Alice, that like he didn't leave. It, it was kind of like, no matter what I do, she's always there. You know what I mean? And it's one of those things where I believe that Lebanon isn't proud or he doesn't take pride or he doesn't relish and um, in hurting people. But I think that for him, it seems like that's the only way he knows how to fully, um, really just let go. I feel that if he knew his mother Sarah's story, like her full story um, and everything that happened to her and, and how she became who she became, I think it would have saved him and Alice and Ruby a lot of heartache and grief and anger. And and that's the thing about Sigmund Ruby King. It's it's this unburdening, this this kind of tale of the, the need to unburden secrets, long buried and dark and deep, in order to free not only yourself, but future generations. Everybody needs saving in this book. Uh, Ruby needs it more, but can you talk a little more about Sarah, Lebanon's mother, Ruby's grandmother? Yeah, so Sarah is, uh, I describe her as kind of a toxic legend. Sarah is somebody on the surface who's cruel and bitter and angry. But if you got to know why she is the way she is, that that feeling or, or that belief you had about her or who you think she is, it cracks. There are a lot of layers to Sarah, a lot of um, just crusty, rusty, just layers. But if you peel them back, you get to see the type of woman um, she was and who she could have hoped to be. But, you know, life sucks sometimes and it's unfair. And for Sarah, it seems like her son as well, you know, Lebanon, that she always seems to get the short end of the stick and it seems that sometimes there are people around her who are thriving 
more than she is, and she can't seem to reconcile why that is, and maybe if it's something in her that like draws all of these bad things. And if you try to ask yourself these questions and you try to find the answers, it probably drive you insane. So I think that with Sarah, the way that she copes or the way she would cope um, to drinking was, you know, alcoholism, unfortunately. And, and that's just like a whole nother um, issue, you know, like the, the circumstances um, and the results um, or the outcomes of addiction. Um, mm-hmm. But Sarah in and of herself, it's one of those things like, what could I have been had all of this not have happened? She's such an important character, even though she's in the hospital dying of cancer. But everything really, so much of it revolves around her, the whole story, right? She's really important. And Lebanon King asks himself, what, are children supposed to forgive their parents for the horrible thing, things they've done? What's your answer to that question? My answer to that question is that it's, there's no easy answer. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, I can only answer for myself. You know, Galit, I don't know what, you know, say your parents have done to you. Like, you can answer that question for yourself and your parents. I can only answer that question for myself and my parents, but I will say that in terms of forgiveness and the need to do so, more oftentimes than not, it's better for you to just to, it's better to forgive. That doesn't mean that you were dismissing anything your parent has done to you, good, bad, ugly, horrific, unspeakable. Nobody is saying that. I'm definitely not saying that. But like in terms of the need to forgive, it's just kind of a reconciling of knowing this was something that had nothing to do with me, but because of circumstances, these are how these things played out. So I'm just going to make, excuse me, I'm going to make the choice to forgive my parent while at the same time paying, uh, you know, recognizing what was done to me was not at all okay, but it made me a stronger person. It made me a better person and it helped me to learn this specific, this particular lesson. That's how I tend to look at it in terms of um, me forgiving my parents for whatever wrongs I feel they've done to me. Do you think Ruby forgives her parents ultimately? I think that Ruby can learn to do it, but that it's up to her. That's a journey that she's going to have to go to on her own, go through on her own. And, you know, we, we all hope for a better ending for ourselves. Um, but, but that's something Ruby's going to have to kind of determine if she's going to be able to, you know, um, forgive her father for being abusive and forgive her mom for staying with him. Um, but ultimately, the way that you do that is kind of explore who you are and how it is those circumstances have affected and shaped you. And make the determination from there as to whether or not you're going to be able to, you know, forgive your parents. So I'll just say that that's completely up to her. Okay. Um, you mentioned the Chicago Bee and the Chicago Defender. Can you talk a bit about uh, Black-owned newspapers in Chicago? What happened to them? What's going on now? Well, I'm, I'm really not an expert. But what I can uh, say generally is that African-American newspapers, especially during the turn of the century, um, the, the, the early um, 20th century, and even now, their way 
for African-Americans to find out what's going on in their communities because this was not talked about in white-owned newspapers, right? They didn't care about African-Americans, our issues, our struggles. Um, There was very real and needed information in all of these newspapers. Um, There were different ones. I think there was one called the Amsterdam. We had the Chicago Bee. Um, That went out of business. We have Chicago Defender. And once again, it was just like a way for African-Americans to find out what's going on with them and their lives. And truth be told, um, there is a, a book called The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. It's a fantastic oh, book about the great it's a migration. wonderful book. So good. And she was talking about the Chicago Defender and how um, the Chicago Defender, I believe, would have to be secretly shipped down south. And that's how, like, that's the reason, like, a lot of people would come up north. They would read, like, these Black-owned newspapers and be like, oh, in the north, there are, like, all of these opportunities that we don't have here. Um, but there was just like, so much more information um, that was, you know, given in, in African-American papers on rights, on a lot of different subjects and things. Um, but once again, I'm no expert. I would, you know, you have to go to an African-American historian who knows way more than I could ever know. So, Is there one in it. Chicago, though? Is there one right now? I believe the Chicago Defender is still, um, still oh, in place. Okay. Okay. Uh, the Chicago Bee went out of business, like according um, to my research, Chicago Bee went out of business. Um, it used to hold a cosmetics factory, the building did, and now it's uh, it's a library. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, so, and I believe it's in Bronzeville. Okay. Layla, oh, just, I love Layla. She says that the easiest thing when confronted with evil is to do nothing, and that all of them everyone in the book, they were all guilty of it. Do you agree with that? Um, I agree with it in parts. Layla has a very black and white view of things. It mirrors my own. Uh, I'm not a gray person. You know, it's, it's either this or it's that. You know, uh, there, there's very few, for me, gray areas. You know, you're right or you're wrong. It's up or you're down. It's left or you're right. Um, so Layla's like, we did nothing, and this is what's happened. I think that if she looked uh, or if she knew about, say, um, her grandma Violet's story and Naomi's story and Sarah's story, she would see that they did what they could for the times in which they found themselves. Um, you know, Ruby does what she can for the situation in which she finds herself. Um, Layla, in her own way, tries to do what she can, but is it enough? Hell no, it's not. It's just, it's not enough. And that's where Layla has a hard time reconciling why her dad acts or why he reacts to Lebanon the way that he reacts. And therefore kind of subconsciously taking her cue from him, she doesn't react in the way that she feels like she needs to. Um, So I kind of feel that you know, um, if Layla were to know the whole history, she would see that it's more complicated than just doing nothing. And mm. this was a wonderful read. I sat down and didn't get up till I finished because <laughs> it was a page turn. It was a Kindle page turner. So um, I'm wondering: Do we? Can we look? Can I look forward to another book soon? What are you working on now? Oh, well, um, I'm actually working on a prequel 
the Saving Ruby King that follows Sarah King's years, uh, her few years in Memphis, and what happens that kind of solidifies um, this kind of move from, you know, possible um, old Sarah to kind of a toxic, uh, the toxic legend uh, we know and, and love and sometimes loathe in Saving Ruby King. Um, so I am kind of working out the details on that and uh, hopefully it gets, you know, picked up and acquired and, and I can continue uh, the uh, Saving Ruby King saga. And then they can make a movie out of it. You know what? Movie. That's, that's the hope. That is the hope. I mean, honestly, with everything that goes on, a limited TV series would probably be best because I don't know if you can fit all of this into two hours. But uh, let's let's just cross our fingers and toes that somebody feels <laughs> similarly. Okay, I'm going to cross my fingers for you too. This was so lovely. I wish you the best. Thank you so much for joining me today, Catherine. Lee, thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. And I love the questions. This was so much fun.